So one of the first questions I had was I was reading an article, I think that you posted on your website and it talked about how the company originally began in 2016 and 2017. Retell that story. I think it's kind of cool because you went into hibernation mode for a little bit and now you're doing what you're doing. Okay, well, I, I might take it back to 2015, if that's sure. okay. So, Absolutely. <laughs> I was doing a PhD at the time on um, the way that swarms of spacecraft interact with asteroids. So the kind of the idea is that they fly past asteroids, and then the, the the gravity kind of changes the way that they're flying, and from that change, you can tell some stuff about the asteroid, and that's useful um, for learning more about the solar system, which is great. So in 2015, though, I wrote this paper um, and I, I kind of went rogue away from my what my supervisors were keen for me to write. Um, and the paper was all about um, instead of going to asteroids, wait for the asteroids to come to you, um, which is a little bit of a novel concept. But the idea is that at the time, there were about 50 asteroids passing through the Earth-Moon system every year, or it, might have, it was probably even less than that. Um, I will say now we're up to um, about 200 per year asteroids that we detect coming through the earth moon system so the idea is that there's so many asteroids coming past that you can just sit out in a specific orbit wait for an asteroid to come kind of close and if you use a little bit of fuel you can do a flyby of that asteroid um and and do some great do some great science and learn lots about asteroids without ever having to leave the uh, earth moon system without ever having to leave earth orbit and that means that you can investigate a lot of asteroids for very little money and the satellites can do something else while they're waiting for the asteroid as well. So you can kind of get more bang for your buck. Um, so yeah, wrote that paper, won, won a prize actually to go to the um, International Astronautical Congress. Um, it was in, um, in Jerusalem, in Israel at the time. And everyone at the conference was like, oh my God, this is a great idea. Um, and so then, <laughs> so yeah, so the next year, um, I was still doing my PhD, but the next year uh, I had a group of guys that we were kind of launching how to do balloons with and, and we were really good technically together. So we started this company to investigate asteroids because I'm like, everyone wants this. Everyone at the conference wanted this. What we didn't realize at the time was that all 5,000 people in the world that cared about this, or the majority of them were in at that conference. So it's kind of like everyone outside of that conference didn't really care. Um, and the technology wasn't really ready either. So the idea is that we would have uh, sold that kind of information to um, asteroid mining companies. There were a few around at that time. Um, we didn't realize that their business model wasn't quite set yet and, and they didn't really know how they were going to take those next steps. So um, sadly, we created the business, thought we had customers um, and, in, and over the next couple of years quickly discovered that we didn't yes and and that's when we had to pivot okay that makes sense you mentioned in i can't remember if this was this was a keynote that i think was released about eight days ago you said the number of satellites they're doubling every year so how how exactly does that work when it comes to your satellites staying in one spot and then rotating around this orbit is there a lot of iteration on the calculations or the flight path how does that kind of work yeah, no, it's it's interesting. So, um, yeah, I mean, the the first key point is is correct, which is yeah, there's an almost doubling every year, which is like I think I saw a post on Twitter the other day saying this is insane. There's more than Moore's law, and that's yeah. absolutely true right now. Because <laughs> what was Moore's law is like doubling every two years or something like that. So yeah, so this is like one every one point two years we're doubling, which is pretty insane right now. So um, 
So, and, and that's a good thing, right? Like satellites do so many useful things uh, for people on earth and they cover so much more um, area and could do uh, things much better than we could, could on earth. So every satellite in space is like, um, you know, the same infrastructure times 10 that we don't have to build on earth. So actually it's an environmental good to have more stuff in space. Um, but yeah, what, what that means in terms of what we do. So we're looking at satellites at the moment for a variety of reasons, primarily to help them uh, get identified quickly uh, so people can get on with their mission and, and make sure that it doesn't turn into space junk. Um, and then the other reason is to really verify and monitor um, what's happening aboard these, these satellites and space debris as well. Um, and it, again, to have that sustainability piece. So people have more information so things don't go wrong um, necessarily. But with so many satellites going up, I guess we shouldn't expect um, the number of failed satellites to increase as well. And what we're keen to do is make sure that that percentage comes down so that we have you know, a stable number of failed satellites or that number hopefully comes down over time. And there's heaps of great stuff we can do with, with failed satellites as well. Like we can recycle them or we can um, make them into monuments or there's heaps of great ideas. So uh, yeah, useful as well. And I wanted to talk about your company specifically as well. I had it written down here. I, I think what you guys are looking to do in the very long term is reduce the cost of asteroid exploration missions by studying and capturing photos of asteroids via your constellation of satellites. Is that correct? Anything to clarify? Yeah, some, somewhat. So um, our mission is to make space transparent. And I mean, we started with asteroids and that's something that we're still keen on doing. What I guess what's changed since we first started is that we know we don't need to build our own satellites anymore. So today we're using 33 satellites that belong to other organizations and we're renting their downtime, which is great because if you care about space sustainability, you don't want to be launching your own satellites necessarily. You want to really use um, things that are already up there. And what we found as well is that a lot of satellites are launching to good spots that they can start investigating asteroids as they fly past, and they can have other missions at the same time. So we can really absolutely uh, do this at a much more cost-effective way, which is great. Really, really cheap asteroid missions. So we can get a lot more information. Um, and at the same time, we can develop a sustainable business without having to rely on the, the future profits from asteroid mining as well. So that's where we're sitting at the moment. And just a, I think something that's not obvious to a lot of people is that asteroid mining is actually incredibly sustainable industry. And that's, that's why we're excited about it. So it's like at the moment, every kilogram we put into space, we have 10 kilograms of mass on a rocket or, um, or fuel and and even SpaceX, even though they're returning a lot of the rocket back to Earth, still that's a lot of fuel that gets burnt to get anything up there. So the most sustainable way to get stuff into space is actually use other stuff in space, i.e. asteroids, uh, mine them, refine them, and then put them together in in orbit and then and then use those for for space missions. Okay, so that begs the question: How close are we to doing that? And I don't mean me; I mean you guys. I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not the. Ooh. I'm not too sure if I'll. If I'll be uh, the CEO of some company like that, so <laughs> no, I think you will. Well, um, I, I I've been telling people this idea recently. Like, this is an idea that we would do because we're we're kind of focused on getting more information about asteroids. But I think if you really wanted to start mining asteroids today, you could, um, and it'd be really cheap. Are you based in the US, by the way? 
I'm based in Vancouver and San Francisco. So yeah, West Coast of Canada and the US. Yeah, so um, the great thing about actually Canada and the US is that they have an ISS program, so you can send payloads to the International Space Station. And a lot of the times you can make that free, um, especially for someone like yourself who's who's young and, and uh, kind of still knows a lot of people in college. So the cheapest way to mine asteroids, and, and there are customers for this um, asteroid mining as well, and, and it's kind of a small market, but these are kind of researchers, still a valid market though. Um, so the cheapest way to do asteroid mining is literally to get some uh, aerogel. So I think I think you can get like a meter cube for, I don't know, a few dollars. Um, kind of cut it up, put it on the outside of the International Space Station. So there's airlocks where you can literally push through this aerogel and wait for the asteroids to hit it. So there's little asteroids kind of coming through the atmosphere every day, right? Those are meteors. Um, and, and they hit the space station every day as well. So um, you can just absorb asteroid material in this aerogel. The Japanese have already done this, by the way, so it's already been tried and tested. And those little bits of asteroid, you'd seal up this aerogel, send it back down to the ground. Um, and then, yeah, there are customers for that material that you pull out of the aer aerogel afterwards. So little asteroids will embed themselves there, and you've done asteroid mining. So... <laughs> And it's very cheap. It's it's like zero cost, right? Because the, the US and Canadian governments will actually pay um, for those payloads to go up there. So, hmm? wow. Okay. That's an idea. I mean, is it that easy though? Like, is it, I feel like there's so much more to it that like the refining, the processing, things that could go wrong, whether it be like debris hitting the debris itself and stuff like that. Yeah, no, I, I mean, so I think you're, you're thinking about the, with the market that you're thinking about here. So people actually want to find out what's happening with the asteroids. So these are kind of, it's kind of a, a small research market, right? Okay. These researchers, they're after all that information. So anything you can provide them is good. All you need to do is make sure that that sample uh, doesn't have something else added to it. So some dust on the ground. So you do need to seal it up before you bring it back down. Uh, but as long as you do that, you've got, you've got valid material. It's been, it's been validly mined. You've picked it up and then you've transported it somewhere. Um, and in this case, it's a zero refining process. So you don't need to worry about that yet. Um, Got it. <laughs> as you, it's kind of like miners on earth do this already, right? So there's kind of like, they go through this stage. People don't, people don't realize how insanely hard mining on earth is. So it's like, you know, technology startups like ours, we've got like a 90% failure rate. Um, mining startups have a 99% failure rate. Um, and the reason is, is it's super hard to start mining startups. Um, and so the best mining startups do little things like this. Like they'll start by sending samples to scientists um, and selling those however they can. And then they'll take the next step and the next step and the next step again. And then we start adding those refining steps and other steps along the way. So um, I think to get started, it's actually quite easy. Um, to get to that end state, it's super hard, but it's also hard on earth as well. Um, and and like people, people think, huge mining companies like BHP or Rio Tinto or what have you, um, they'll just put in $10 billion and then everything will be sorted. But right. that $10 billion comes after 30 years of development uh, before they even get to that point. So I think, I think that's quite a way to go uh, for people. Yeah. To your point, like the more I've interviewed companies in the aviation and aerospace sector, I realize how, how hard it is and how nuanced it can be. Even yeah. if the concept, even if the concept sounds simple in practice, I want to talk about how you guys have thought about like raising capital for the company as well, oh, yeah. given that there is, 
it takes an enormous amount of money to like get this thing off the ground and then sustain it. Yeah, well, yeah, it's really interesting how we started. So originally we thought we'd need to raise a lot of capital. Um, and so we were talking to investors and to start with, they were very excited about Asteroid Mine. They're like, oh my God. And then they realized how many steps were in the process. And they're like, yeah, we, we can't fund that. And then the Asteroid Mining companies that were in existence started to kind of collapse um, because they hadn't quite figured out the business model yet. That, that's normal. Like that's not a, that's not shade on them. That's, that's just them trying something, doing really well. Um, but the bar was just so incredibly high. They couldn't, they couldn't make it with the capital they had. Um, another way to do things is develop things slowly. So you kind of develop things for an existing market um, and then for the next market and so on. Then you, maybe you're creating a platform and maybe you're going forward there. So this is kind of like the Google play and what, why people, why software companies are so much easier to start. Like it's still hard. It's a lot easier. And and what it's all about is like, how do you start with a zero cost? Um, so for us, renting other people's satellites we had no idea that it would even work. But the good news is we could just test it using the software. So we applied our software to existing satellites. Um, and then it turned out those satellites were very good um, at Im imaging other spacecraft, space junk, um, asteroids as time goes on. And um, yeah, so we're able to start there. And because we kept testing with software, we were able to find when it started working um, and then really start to take off without barely any capital injected to begin with so we started using satellites before we raised much money like we had a small twenty thousand dollars we got from an accelerator um but nothing more than that to get to that point so um i think there's actually a lot we can do as space companies and there's a lot of infrastructure in space that we can get access to already um i think i think a lot of space companies probably aren't thinking creatively enough um, to start raising capital the same way a pure software business was. But I think that potential is there. Right. And I read in another article that you've been thinking about this idea, I, I believe since 2009. What would you say has changed since then until now? Yeah, I mean, when, when I say 2009, it's, it's been like thinking about the asteroid mining space. Um, so yeah, my picture, the, it's a huge picture, right? And I've been in this um, for at least 13 years, as you just said, at this point. And it'll probably be another 13 years. And when you look at people like Elon Musk, he's already been in this game about 20 years. And there's probably another 20 years before he hits his goal at Mars. So the timescales here are kind of insane. Um, but I think, yeah, like myself, I'm really committed. I think a lot of other committed people are in this space. And um, and yeah, like the road's long, <laughs> but as you go on, it becomes easier as well because people start noticing, they start giving you resources and you start going on from there. So um, yeah, like you've, you've probably seen, we've raised um, plenty of cash now and, and we've got great backers like Y Combinator um, and that's really helped us progress forward. Um, but we needed to really prove ourselves first before they give us any money um, before we could prove ourselves even more and then more money. And it just keeps building like that. Are, what would you say are some misconceptions about starting a startup in Australia? Again, I'm in Canada and the US. So honestly, I really don't think we hear about startups in Australia very often, even though there's, you know, amazing companies like Canva and others. Yeah. Canva, Canva's just down the road from us in Sydney. Um, oh, yeah, that's amazing. 
Yeah, no, it is. Yeah, it's great. Um, oh, Atlassian's cool. just down the road as well, um, which is great. So uh, there's a couple of big companies, not many though, to your point. Um, and yeah, it's it's kind of tough. So I think what was interesting for for us at Here Robotics is that we had to um, actually uh, go to the US to get funding, and this is also true of Canva and Atlassian never actually raised venture they raised they did raise one round in the us uh, that came at a much later stage so um every company that's doing kind of well has had to go to the us first um in order to raise money now that's not true um, for every business australia has a lot of uh, me too businesses um so for example um we have a business here called uh, afterpay which has done really well it's being purchased by block um in the us uh, which is great um, so they've had a great exit and they're, they're kind of like a me too of a firm, which you might've heard of. In right. The US. Absolutely. Yep. Um, love you. They've become bigger mm-hmm. than a firm now, I think, but it, it's kind of weird. That was a me too business. Australia VCs fund a lot of these businesses, but businesses that want to do something really different, we all have to go to the U S first, which is a real shame. Um, but you know, I think there's a lot of people that love this country. You should visit sometime and, uh, it's a beautiful place. It's kind of a bit out of the way. Um, but what that allows you to do is think differently, kind of like the reason the West Coast in the US, I believe, is so is the hub spot is a hub of uh, of activity in terms of technology in the US is because they were able to think differently from people on the East Coast because they were remote. And again, I think that's true in Australia as well. So I think it's it's another um, iteration um, on that. Yeah. And has that sent the signal to VCs, at least in Australia, saying, hey, you know, there are there are amazing companies being built here. And in some ways, you are losing out on that potential of making a lot of money being an early investor. I really wish. I really wish. I don't seem to have the message. It's funny. Like I I experienced it too. I remember there was a couple companies in Toronto maybe 10 years ago. They really struggled to get funding. They went through Y Combinator as well. And it was just, yeah, it was very hard. But isn't, isn't Toronto has like, um, I guess outside of the US, it has the larger, largest Y Combinator cohort comes from Toronto, right? I so, think so. Uh, yeah. Yeah. According to the New York Times, it's quietly booming. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's weird, isn't it? It's like, um, I think Silicon Valley has been really good at making all their learnings public, especially in this age of YouTube, et cetera. And it's allowed, I think. I don't, I don't know what's actually true, but I feel like that's been a big part of a place like Toronto and Sydney booming with um, new startups. Um, sadly, the investors haven't got the memo some, for some reason. So <laughs> it's kind of, anyway, I don't know. <laughs> have, you, have you seen a change? I think they're, they're going to have to change. They're going to have to, but it might take a while. So I guess, I mean, funds, funds are usually have a 10-year life, right? So maybe it'll take two cycles for them to change. And maybe it's a 20 year thing. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, on to another question I had, and this is one that, again, my audience is, a. L- sorry, I don't think I said this before, but my audience is a little bit non-technical. Um, mm-hmm. You've mentioned that next year, I think you're going to geo. Oh yeah. Can you explain yeah. that? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll talk quickly about that. So um, that's kind of, there's a couple of different orbits that, space companies use. Uh, so the first one is LEO or low Earth orbit. So that's between, um, you know, essentially zero, but um, usually somewhere between 300 and 1200 kilometers 
above the Earth. And that's used for uh, human spaceflight. So the International Space Station and Chinese space stations are up there, as well as Earth observation, looking down at Earth. And all the new internet constellations are largely at that altitude, so they can have a, a you know a short ping time um, sending internet, that kind of thing. Um, then there's another level, which is called medium Earth orbit. So that's kind of between 1,200 and uh, 35,000 kilometers. And that's generally used for uh, navigation and timing constellations. So GPS, GLONASS, um, uh, BIDO uh, constellations like that. And then GEO is the next level. So this is traditionally where the most valuable satellites sat. And they were traditionally used for um, like satellite phones, um, a little bit of internet, uh, that kind of thing. So really high orbit, really valuable orbit. And the idea is that it stays stationary above a part of the Earth as the day goes on. So it's in sync with the Earth. Um, so a lot of great satellites up there. Uh, it's also really far away from Earth. So what it means is that you see just a dot in the sky. You, you generally never get a resolved image, which means that you can't really tell what's going on unless something really bad happens. Like sometimes from Earth, you see an explosion and kind of a puff of material comes out, uh, but that's bad. <laughs> you you want, you want to see what's happened before that happens, if that makes sense. You want to kind of be a bit more uh, prepared. So, um, and I, I think that's why it's really important that we're going to Geo. So we'll be going to Geo next year with a partner that we haven't um, announced yet. We'll be announcing that soon. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll actually be going to what's called graveyard orbit, which is a bit above Geo. What that allows us to do is kind of um, rotate um, around GEO over a period of, of about two months and have a look at everything in GEO as we, we rotate above it. Um, and that's really critical because there hasn't been a civilian ability to have a look at what's going on there yet. There have been different military and intelligence satellites up there looking around, but nothing to help commercial operators do what they need to do. Um, and it's really expensive to get up there. It can be up to a billion dollars sometimes to get a satellite into geo so really having a look at it understanding its health um ensuring that no one comes past trying to you know do something nefarious all those things are really critical for people in geo and one other thing on top of that i've always been really curious to know how these deals of this caliber whether it be with the partner that you're doing geo with or otherwise like how they're constructed what what does that look like because i think even people are sometimes surprised that you know SpaceX's number one number one customer is the government through government contracts. So, is there a way to balance like public and private? What do you? How do you guys think about that? Oh, in terms of um, our customers or in terms of our suppliers? Yeah, why not? Yeah, both. I mean, I'd even think about the supplier part as well. But please explain that too. That'd be awesome. Yeah. No, definitely. Yeah. No, these are great questions. Um, so, I think with. Um, with our government and with our commercial customers, things look a little bit different. Um, and I will say as well, we're trying to help people move from the way space has traditionally been done, which was actually invented by government. Um, to your point, like government was the original major client, so everyone's doing things that way. And more, more to that, uh, the way government thought about it was actually formed by the military before that. So even things like um, TRL, technology readiness level, um, is uh, parlance used in the space industry. And other things like even the word mission um, actually comes from the the military mission. <laughs> so it it kind of makes sense in a way to talk about 
space in that way. But actually, as we're changing the way we do space business, it makes less and less sense. Um, but that, that's gone into contracting as well. So firstly, in contracting, we think about things in terms of missions. We should instead be thinking about things in terms of how do we get value back to the customer. The customer at the end of the day, no matter if it's us or anyone else working in space, is someone on Earth that needs a job done to help people on Earth. Uh, and so thinking about what that value is, is really important. And we're trying to apply that to the space industry as well. So we're trying to say to people, look, you're looking after an asset, um, a spacecraft, and you're doing that probably over a 10-year lifetime. And really what you want to do is get equal value over every month of that lifetime to ensure that that satellite's fine for its entire life. So we're trying to do things like bill people monthly. Um, we're trying to get that same way of thinking with our suppliers as well. So we're treating our suppliers like partners um, and making sure that we pay them in a way where they um, get to capture a lot of the value we're creating. Um, so we love this uh, revenue share model uh, where they can continue to get uh, revenue uh, over the period of their life rather than getting a lump sum and then they're done. Um, and it keeps them more honest as well. So instead of saying, okay, we'll launch something, but you know, it might blow up. We're like, That's not okay, <laughs> it's got to keep working. <laughs> Otherwise we don't get value and our customers don't get value. Uh, so you shouldn't be paid. So I think, I think there's a changing way um, in that thought process. And that's really how we think about our contracts as well. So we're trying to make sure um, we win. We try and make sure our suppliers win. And the reason for that is that we want our customers to win. <laughs> so, yeah. Absolutely. In terms of how you see competition looking in the future, do you think like each country will kind of have like a flagship aerospace company like the United States might have, like Blue Origin, SpaceX, yeah. Virgin? Like what, yeah. what do you think that looks like? Yeah, I, um, uh, I hope not. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's um, actually, maybe I'll, I'll take a backtrack a bit and, and talk about, um, I guess, Australia's state of play. So at the moment, if you think about old space, um, you've got the Boeings, the Lockheed Martins, um, the Airbuses. Um, and what's weird about Australia, we have them all here with good big offices here. So traditionally, we've just bought from Every one of these players, um, and and yeah, they've got a great presence here in Australia. And I think I think it's probably true of a lot of different countries as well. So in Canada, for example, there's um, McDonald Detweiler, which is a great company, um, and then but then a, maybe a Boeing or a Northrop Grumman will go in and and um, do their thing as well. So um, I think as things progress, so we're going into this new space realm. What I'd love to see instead of like a space company that does everything and then to be based in nation states, I'd love to see more and more people take different verticals, um, kind of more like the software industry. And the reason for that is that I think if you focus in one area, you can do something really well. Um, and it also allows competitors to kind of, um, you know, really challenge you if you're not doing a good job anymore. So I'd love to see more of that. Um, I don't know how feasible that is. So um, probably, I, I think, subcon or maybe consciously or subconsciously, you're, you're discussing um, the way that nation states really control a lot of space right now. Um, and really, I hope that that changes into more of a commercial kind of vertical um, route. So we'll see how we go. That's the future I'd love to see. Uh, but yeah, I hope it's not nation by nation. 
No, for sure. The the reason I asked is because I, I always think of like Uber and Lyft competing against each other as one example. I think of the education space where a lot of players are able to compete because they provide very niche services. So maybe as a follow-up question, do you foresee aerospace falling one or the other? Well, I got to say at the moment, there are very few winners um, in the space market. So um, yeah, you've you've probably seen a lot of the, the SPAC activity, which has been great, um, but there's not been a lot of, I, I guess, continuation of that value that they originally generated, which is a bit of a, a shame. Um, but you see other companies like SpaceX. So first they're privately held. So maybe the market's a little bit different, although that's been a definite goal of theirs. Um, and Blue Origin's another great example, um, you know, a little bit different with one really major shareholder that continues to provide them um, additional investment as time goes on. But both of those companies are continuing to increase in value and they keep increasing the, the building of value, which is um, really fantastic. So I think, I think um, at the moment, there aren't enough people trying to differentiate themselves from those companies. Um, and I do think that that's probably going to be a problem as time goes on because there can only be one or two winners in verticals. Um, so people need to think about what are the different verticals that they can take. Um, and if they don't think about that, then a SpaceX will come along, create the Starlink constellation. And, uh, you know, in Blue Origin's case, you know, we could argue that Amazon with Project Kuiper is somewhat affiliated with them. Um, so that happens if people don't chase after verticals. If people tr try and chase after everything, there can only be a couple of winners. So people need to differentiate for sure um, in order for there to be a more diverse um, kind of ecosystem. Right. Before I ask the final question, I'm, I'm curious to know how you think about like leading the team and being a manager um, because it, it, it can be so hard to get people to push themselves to think of innovative ideas when they realize so much is on the line. So how do you incentivize that? Again, it's so nuanced, but I'm, I'm just really curious to know what you think there. No, it's definitely, I think it's an issue for a lot of space companies because a lot of the people in management roles are like engineers. Yeah, exactly. That's why I'm always curious. All right. Okay. You're, you're an engineer, right, Cassius? I'm sorry? You're an engineer, right? No, politics, uh, politics bachelor's, and then I did my master's in, for an MBA. So That's why you're so personable. Um, <laughs> so you, you'd probably be a great manager in the space industry. Um, but yeah. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> so yeah, no, it's super tricky. Um, so in terms of how you keep people innovative, um, I think what we're doing is new. So it's actually kind of easy to be innovative. I am concerned about what our next product is. So we've got Heal Inspect at the moment, which is our inspection um, application. And that's great. There's a lot of work that we know needs to be done. And we've kind of got a fair idea of where it's going now. In terms of the next thing, um, that's going to be interesting. We're going to have to, you know, double down on the innovativeness. Um, I will say, though, like uh, we've hired for, we, we <laughs> I don't know if I should admit this uh, publicly, but we hire for weirdness. Um, so that's one of the criteria. So I guess the, the equivalent would be like Googliness or something. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. But the idea is to get people. So when someone's weird, they're someone that, you know, thinks differently. Like that's the kind of the definition of weirdness. So we're trying to ingrain that in the team and continue that as time goes on. So it does make life a little bit awkward. Uh, but we um, double down and say that we love that awkwardness in the company. And that's kind of, uh, 
I guess, a measure of our weirdness. Um, so, and I, something, <laughs> something again to kind of illustrate this is is kind of the way that um, teams party. So, um, I think, yeah, we we're a team that loves, I don't know, maybe going to an escape room or something to wind down, and be like. I think some of the the original Google parties have come out on on YouTube and and they're just really weird awkward affairs. Um, so I think I think that's you've got to have these nerds, you've got to have these this kind of weirdness going on, and and that we hope will continue to help us innovate as time goes on because we've got people thinking differently to others in the industry. What are you passionate about that you don't get asked about a lot? What am I passionate about? That oh. you don't get asked about a lot. Oh, uh, the environment. Yeah, really, um, really love life here on Earth. And and I guess um, just delving into this a little bit more deeply. So I was inspired by Star Wars um, to get into the space industry. Because I was like, yeah, fuck yeah, Star Wars. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, and uh, I was like, I've got to design spacecraft. Like, that's got to be my job. Uh, this was when I was 12. So it's just. Held oh, that's sick. That's awesome. <laughs> But then I was like, what do I love about Star Wars? And I think it's actually the different environments and places you can go and like that opening of the universe to, to experiencing different things and, and having this diversity of experiences. Um, and I think a lot of people find this already by traveling the globe, but I think there's another level again by traveling the, the solar system and beyond. So, um, but I th that comes all the way back to environmentalism, like thinking about, how can we ensure that we can continue to live on Earth? And um, how can we ensure that we continue to have a great time here? And, um, you know, we can live with other creatures and, and um, plants as well. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's something I think about a lot. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, I think, weirdly, it's the reason I got into space in the first place. And, and why I say, you know, mine, space mining is super sustainable actually so it's the thing we should do rather than the thing that we should be scared about because we have some negative connotation with what's done here on earth absolutely i think that's really cool okay what actually one more question if sure, people want to if people want to learn more about your business get in touch with you the company how can they do that where can they find you yeah, so they can come to our website, www.hearrobotics.com with a hyphen between here and robotics. And um, yeah, there's a sign-up form there. Um, they can also demo uh, the product. So we have a link to that um, at inspect.hearrobotics.com. Uh, so yeah, definitely have a look. Uh, we've got some images of the ISS that are publicly available. And um, and yeah, actually, as part of, part of that keynote, you saw the other... You saw the other day, we actually took uh, an image of the ISS together. So that's also available uh, on the app. We're actually freaking out. We're like, we better get this image now that we said we would. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's awesome. In the time that we uh, agreed to. So yeah, that's, that's probably <laughs> available as well. <laughs> For people listening, www.heo-robotics.com. Okay. Well, Crow, thank you so much. This is awesome. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, really appreciate your time. Thank you.